this is Penny Johnson, and you're listening to From Stage to Page, an audiobook podcast devoted to the forgotten stories and memoirs of female performing artists from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. In this episode, we continue with My Life and Dancing, written by Maud Allen and published in 1908 by Paul R. Reynolds. Chapter 10 A Word About Women Another letter interested me sincerely. It was intended to be a reply to my remark, women should influence rather than dictate. It read as follows. Dear Madam, in the interesting account you wrote for the Daily Mail of your impressions of England, you say, I have been to the House of Commons, but not as a suffragette, as I think a woman should influence rather than dictate. May I, as one of the militant suffragists, explain that our policy is not to dictate, but to fulfill our duties and responsibilities in the world in which we find ourselves. At the present time, we are not allowed to do this. We have to live under and obey laws in which we have had no voice, and many of these laws are most unfair to women, and some of us feel this keenly, not for ourselves but for others. The divorce laws, the laws relating to children, and the unprotected lives of young girls. In this country, the age of consent is only 16. A girl at that age is a mere child. We are taxed, yet not allowed to say at all how the money is to be spent. All through life women are being unfairly exploited and are refused the only weapon left in modern civilizations, that of the vote. We want to take our share in these duties and in no way to dictate to the men, only to stop them dictating to us. You are too busy, I expect, to come to the office to hear for yourself. We are at home every Thursday afternoon, or at other times by appointment. I am sorry I have not seen your dancing, but this work absorbs nearly all my time, or I should certainly have come, as I am very fond of dancing and watching it. Yours faithfully, E. H. M. It is with some little diffidence, quite a different thing from reluctance, that I set out my views on certain questions connected with my sex. Although I have thought over them deeply and often, I yet rather shrink from obtruding them upon the notice of a public who have been so kind to me when, in the exercise of my art, I have endeavored to depict emotions excited by beautiful music. As regards the question of votes for women, I believe that a woman can do more from an elevated position in the world of art by bringing all that makes home beautiful into her husband's and children's lives than she could by casting a dozen votes before the time is ready. However, I do not want to take up my small remaining space to discuss a question that might fill volumes and then be only half thrashed out. I suppose every woman has to make her own bed and as she makes it, so will she have to lie upon it. I am glad I don't have to sleep on beds of other people's making, especially our modern English suffragettes. 
I should be a very unhappy girl. Even the above letter, with its praise at the end, has not convinced me that the vote is at present necessary. Not for anything in the world would I have my anxious suffragist sister think that I do not believe in women being as highly educated as men are, for I do. I don't believe it is possible for a woman or a man to have too much education and refinement, which, by the way, is the very essence of education as I look upon it. But breaking windows and throwing stones will not bring a woman what she wants and needs, for just as surely as the colleges were opened to a woman, so will the ballot be given her when she is ready to receive it. Women should beware that they do not pay too much attention to mere instruction, and yet pass by the demands of the real and truer education. For some time I have been keenly interested in the question of women's education, being strongly of opinion that there should be no difference at all between the sexes in this respect. I have no desire to dabble in psychology and discuss whether there is or is not any basic difference between the male and female intellect. If there is such a difference, it will be manifested rather in the creative and originative faculties than in the acquisitive. Where study is concerned, actual results have shown that, even with the limitations imposed upon women, she can hold her own. For a woman is a human being and has an absolute right to the fullest development of her mental faculties. All the treasures of science and literature should be open to her exactly as to her brother. Whatever advantage he gains by the highest education, she gains also, and whether one considers her as an independent unit or as the companion and comrade of man, nothing but benefit to the whole human race can accrue from the mental cultivation of woman. Nothing but harm and arrested development can come from treating the education of one half the human race as relatively unimportant. It is because her education has been neglected, rather than because of any natural difference, that woman has, for so many, become accepted as intellectually inferior to man. Our university records, since women have been admitted to their studies and examinations, do not bear out any notion of inferiority. Was not Miss Fawcett placed above the senior wrangler? And mathematics, I take it, is not exactly the subject one would have expected a woman to shine in. Then there have been senior classics and all sorts of distinctions in every branch of learning. Which reminds me that Oxford and Cambridge, although they admit women to the examinations and record the place they have won, do not permit them to take the degrees that fall to the share of a man passing the same examinations. What possible excuse can there be for such a line of conduct as that? I suppose it is traceable to the old-fashioned prejudice against the higher education of women, which still lingers in quarters where something better might have been expected. Anyhow, it is good to know that London and some of the younger universities place their women students on the same footing as men in all respects. Nor is it only the universities and other higher educational institutions that are concerned. Parents are equally interested. 
At present, it is the exception to find parents who deem it as much their duty to give their girls the very best available education precisely as they do their boys. Most people appear to regard a quite inferior standard as quite good enough for their daughters. Even if facilities were the same, many would not take advantage of them. I suppose it is a case of action and reaction. The lesser facilities probably render many parents indifferent. The indifference of many parents in turn checks progress and retards movement in the forward direction. Perhaps I had better say at once that I am sufficiently old-fashioned to believe that the rightful destiny of every woman is to be the wife and mother, to make that inner sanctuary known by the sweet name of home. And it is just because I believe she cannot be a real wife to her husband or a real mother to her children, in the best and highest sense, unless she is intellectually and educationally on a level with them, that I am so earnest an advocate of the removal of every obstacle, whether due to law or custom, that stands in the way of woman's education. At the same time, one must recognize, with some sadness, for many reasons, among which the preponderance of the female element in the population of most civilized countries is one of the foremost that not to every woman can happy wifehood and motherhood fall. Many women must be their own breadwinners and stand alone. The avenues of employment will be widened by better female education." Therefore, the more professions and avocations that are opened up for us women, the better. Particularly do I think women should be doctors. In so many cases, they possess an intuitive perception of the pains of their own sex, which a man-doctor cannot possibly be expected to possess, that their advice and sympathy, the latter is not to be overlooked as a curative element, are invaluable. Yet I must candidly confess that, when it comes to surgery, I think men are more reliable. At any rate, if I had the misfortune to have to undergo an operation, I feel that I should experience a greater sense of security with a male operator. I may be wrong, for such ideas are matters of feeling rather than of thought. I am less certain as to whether it is desirable the legal profession should be thrown open to members of my sex. I am not doubting their intellectual qualifications, or that they could master the subject. The existence of lady barristers in France disposes of any query on that score. But temperament counts, as well as intellect. We women are swayed still by our emotions to a greater extent than men, and while now and then this might benefit a client, on the whole I am inclined to the view that there would be an absence of that dispassionate weighing of pros and cons, that impersonal consideration of all that told against a client as well as in his favor, without which a legal adviser will probably do more harm than good. Moreover, I take it that if women were admitted to the bar, they could not be debarred from the bench. Now, if the natural inclination of my sex to take aside and brush aside objections would prove disadvantageous in the practice of advocacy, in the case of a judge it would be absolutely fatal. 
careful weighing of evidence, exhaustive analysis free from emotional bias is antagonistic to our instincts. Of course, I am speaking in general terms. Just as there are feminine men, there are masculine women. There is something feminine in every man, something masculine in every woman. But one cannot legislate for exceptions. And, broadly stated, I believe the facts are as I have ventured to put them. I candidly admit that the differences upon which I have insisted may be due to long generations of training and environment. It may well be that, in years to come, when the improved education of women has become more general, when the greater freedom of their mode of life, with the accompanying broadening of mental outlook, has wrought changes, these differences may be modified. When that time comes, the whole aspect of the problem may be altered. But today, with woman's nature what it is, I think the legal profession unsuited to my sex. For precisely the same reason, I fear that I must rank myself among those who do not believe it desirable that women should exercise the franchise. Man has been defined as a political animal. Woman is not. The ordinary working man, when his day's work is done, will discuss politics with his fellows, will read political articles in his newspaper. His wife will chat over dress or housekeeping or gossip about her neighbors. If she reads, it will probably be some serial story in a newspaper dealing mostly with love. It is an open secret that the adoption of the feuilleton of late years in so many English newspapers is primarily designed to furnish reading for the female members of the family. I don't see how statistics are to be got on this topic, but I feel confident that if they were procurable, they would show that the majority of the men who take any particular newspaper do not read the serial story, while the majority of the women do. At bottom, this points to a genuine sex difference. Whether it is nature or education that is responsible need not concern us now, although it may affect the future. The main thing is that it exists, and it is this. Men care more for principles women for persons. You may say this is generalizing. It is, but I think it is a generalization whose accuracy will be conceded. The personal characteristics of a candidate would undoubtedly weigh unduly with women. His looks, his manner, his bearing would interest them far more than his views. I have, in the course of my life, and in the practice of my profession, met women of many countries and many classes, and my experience tends to confirm me in the view that, broadly speaking, women care little or nothing for abstract questions. Their thoughts and their conversation are directed to persons. That is why they are so unsuited to politics, in my opinion. I shall be extremely sorry if my frankness offends anyone, but I feel bound to utter my genuine thoughts, even if in so doing I fail to please many of my own sex, for whose intellect, character, and achievements I have the highest respect, the profoundest admiration. Woman should be the refining, the inspiring, the idealizing element of humanity. In becoming a good politician, she would cease to be that. 
Needless to add, perhaps, that even if I thought the franchise for women desirable, I do not view the tactics adopted by some of its advocates with approval. It seems to me they are calculated to damage rather than to further the cause, above all to depart from that refining ideal which women should maintain. To have set up a rival platform to Mr. Winston Churchill, for instance, to have made a speech so much more interesting than his that it would have depleted his audience and left him talking to empty benches, would have been legitimate and a handsome way of opposing him. To clang a bell so that he could not be heard is mere rowdyism and unworthy. In conclusion, I should like to say that men have in the past, step by step, removed many of the obstacles that have stood in the way of woman's freedom. Our condition has changed immeasurably for the better, as witness the educational question on which my heart is set. Much yet remains to be done, and men will do it, for, after all, no man is free from the influence of some woman. The careers of the greatest men prove it, as wives, mothers, sisters, daughters, they more or less mold husbands, sons, brothers, and fathers. For children do modify parents as parents do children. The pity is that in so many instances that influence has not been of the right kind. The general raising of the standard of women's education should remedy that, and with women swaying men to nobler and loftier ideals, the world will move to higher things, and humanity progress nearer divinity.